0: And welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini episode 51.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time to cover on the main episode. So I'm excited to be with you back here again, talking more wizard as always. Episode 51 was a lot of fun. Gabe man, so enthusiastic. Loved his wizard. Loved his image comics. You know, it's good to have that perspective on the podcast. Uh, of course, uh, you know we have a lot of things to talk about in this episode we've been hearing from you on social media some things that you would like to have included so we're gonna try to mix it up here uh but first up of course we got to get into cap's kooky contests Now, the first one here is actually not an official wizard contest, but in the inside cover of issue 51, they are promoting Mall Rats, the Kevin Smith film, you know, with that magic eye ad. Uh, but then inside the wizard news section, they have this sidebar contest ad that says, let's be blunt. Then you got Jay there saying, snoochy boochies. And it says, phone orgasm, get high, win. Call the Mall Rats Touch Tunes sweepstakes hotline. And hear boochy sounds on the Mallrats cd and then all of a sudden it just says air rock footwear or a Mallrats cd or t-shirt is yours free if you win the oh so easy instructions gives you a number to call and then it tells you which numbers to push to get to all the uh, menus but then it says hear bitchin tunes by bush weezer sponge elastica wax belly girls against boys all archers of loaf thrust hermit the goops squirt gun and sublime well, I've heard of like four of those bands. <laughs> but either way, yes, yeah, so this is really just a promotion for the soundtrack, it sounds like. But Mallrats, get mauled October 20th. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting that they were running those types of ads in the magazine. Of course, Kevin Smith becomes very popular in the pages of Wizard, especially when he starts writing comics. But let's get on to an official Wizard contest here. This one says the Spider-Man figure contest. Hey, looky here. The people Creative License wanted you to have a Spidey on a wall for your wall. And guess what? You don't have to write a 1,000 word essay or do your best Picasso impression to win it. You just have to know how to spell your name and tell us where you live. (laughs) How to play. Just fill out the entry form below and send it to us. Then we take the entries, mix them all up, and pick a winner. The lucky winner will get one of these great Spidey wall things. Easy enough? So come on, what are you waiting for? This is where we tell you about the prize. (laughs) Grand prize. One reader will get his limited edition, cool-looking, Randy Bowen sculpted, nine-inch tall sculpture of Spider-Man. It's cold-casted in porcelain, ooh, and hand-painted, ah, it even comes with one of those certificates of authenticity you all love so much. Oh yeah, it has a retail price of $140, jeez, that's a lot of bucks for knowing how to spell your own name. So yeah, that is a a pretty simple contest to enter here, they just wanted to give everybody a chance to win, make it fair, I guess, for once, if you didn't have any Particular skills? But it says here, contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Creative License, Marvel, their immediate families, and doe. Who's a deer? A female deer. Huh? huh? Little sound of music there. <laughs> Next here we have Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purpose and rules hereof. Ray, a pocket full of sun. Me, a name I call myself. So just continuing on. (laughs) Gonna do the whole song. It's actually kind of a cool sculpture I will mention, only because they also have like bullet holes or some type of chunks that have been blown out of the wall like there is a villain trying to blast Spidey. But on to the next contest. All right, so we had that interview conducted by Jim Lee of Chris Claremont in this issue, so they wanted a tie-in contest, the Sovereign 7 Guest Star Contest. And there is, who I assume is Matrice, this main villainess, she says, These wondrous prizes will be mine! And then she's holding a skull up, and it says, Uh, you can't enter, Matrice, ma'am. So it says this month's contest is sponsored by those people with a whole big friggin' comic universe to choose from, DC Comics. Sovereign 7 ain't just any old DC title, you know. It's a bit different. Sovereign 7 is a creator-owned property owned by none other than top flight writer Chris Claremont that actually exists within the framework of the DC universe. Heck, any DC character could come strolling into the pages of Sovereign 7 at any moment, just like Darkseid did in issue one. So maybe DC would like to know which DC character you, the wizard reader, would like to see in the pages of Sovereign 7. You tell us who and why, and you could walk away with some cool prizes. How to play? Get a piece of paper and pen, or pencil if you go for that smudge look and tell us, in 100 words or less, which DC Universe character, hero, villain, or civilian you would most like to see in Sovereign 7 and why you'd like to see that character in the book. It's that simple. You can pick whoever you want. Superman, Gorilla Grodd, Batman, The Calculator, whoever. But whoever you pick, be creative and be original. We like that. The most creative entries will walk away with some, When they just says here, keen prizes. Plus, you've got, like, cutouts of the members of the team team saying we can't allow these prizes to fall into the wrong heads. We're with you Cascade. Alright, so grand prize one reader will get an actual original Sovereign 7 script autographed by writer Chris Claremont. Now that's different, but that's not all. We'll even throw in a page of Sovereign 7 layout sketches by artist Dwayne Turner. Ooh gala, hold on tight. That lucky winner also gets a Sovereign 7 number one premium edition autographed by Chris Claremont. Okay, uh, I assume the Chris Claremont signature might be worth something i don't know who cares about sovereign seven anymore or even at this time uh, first prize 10 readers will each receive a sovereign seven number one premium edition autographed by chris claremont second prize 20 readers will each receive a sovereign seven poster autographed by both chris claremont and dwayne turner so yeah i mean again kind of mixing it up there if i'm trying to decide who i want from the dc universe to go to the sovereign seven universe I just want to throw him a curveball. Make it Batmite. Put Batmite in there. Or Mr. Mixex-Piddalick. Mixelplick. I can't say it. Can you say it? You think you're so smart? Anyway, let's get to the Legal 17, they're calling it here contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, DC Comics, and Dark Side. You've already been in Sovereign 7. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you can make a return appearance. Why not? Uh, let's see here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purpose and rules hereof. Come to think of it, we won't let Reverse Flash enter this contest either. What a lame bad guy name. <laughs> That's true. Definitely had some good stories over the years, but Reverse Flash? Not so cool. He is the same as Professor zoom right i don't know correct me geeks on to the next contest this one's called the ghost rider motorcycle contest he's a ghost and he writes to us ghost rider
1: ghost rider what a trip
0: Oops, wrong Ghost Rider! <laughs> Ain't I a stinker? Okay, here's what Wizard really had to say about this giveaway. It's a chance to win the hottest contest yet at comic conventions everywhere. Marvel has featured an amazing Ghost Rider motorcycle, hand painted by artist Bill Sinkevich. Now Marvel wants you to get in on the fun. Here's what you gotta do. How to play? On a piece of paper or poster board, no bigger than eight and a half by eleven, draw or describe in words what you think Ghost Rider's motorcycle should look like like. And remember, no neon inks! If your entry is good enough, which means really original and cool looking, you could win one of these prizes. I do think that's very nice that they said, look, if you can't draw a motorcycle, just describe it to us in words. Grand prize, one winner will get a giant-sized poster of the Ghost Rider Harley Davidson motorcycle signed by the legendary Bill Sienkiewicz himself, and he even knows how to spell his own name correctly! <laughs> First prize, one winner will receive all seven 5-inch Toy biz- Ghost Rider action figures, ooh, I know a particular podcaster who loves Ghost Rider that probably has them already, but wouldn't have mind getting them for free. Second prize, one winner will receive all three 10-inch Toy Biz Ghost Rider action figures. Isn't that interesting, though? So, like, first prize, you get the 5-inch, because that's what everybody really wants. Second prize, the 10-inch, because you're kind of like, yeah and maybe there were just fewer of them. And just because we're so swell, all entries will be put into a drawing to win one of 30 Toy Biz stunt cycles with either Ghost Rider, Black laser vengeance wow that's pretty cool so nice of you wizard now we have here the hot legal hooey in parentheses we'd catch hellfire if we didn't print it as per usual a marvel sponsored contest no jokes no jokes So you know what else is an ongoing contest in Wizard, and I haven't been treating it that way, is the drawing board where everybody submits their fan art. So I just wanted to read here what they were giving away, because I think it's interesting to note, like, this is what you were competing for, right? So it says, Who Needs the Pros? This is the show for Wizard Reader's Art. The eight hardworking people whose artwork scored an honorable mention this month will each receive an X-Force number 38 signed by Fabian Nusieza, and a Superboy number 0 signed by Tom Grummet. Oh, that's cool. The three solid runners up will each receive a copy of the Max number one signed by Sam Keith. Ah, uh, excellent. A Spider-Man number 51 signed by Tom Lyle and a Captain America number 425 signed by Mark Gruenwald and Dave Hoover. Gian Piero J. Genovese, the highly talented artist of the winning entry this month, will receive all that cool stuff plus an original piece of Vampirella art by Hern Cho. Thanks tons guys. A hearty congrats to all of you. So the other thing that was actually mentioned on social media recently somebody brought up the fact that they're printing like for the letter art winners for the drawing board winners they're printing a picture of the winner so I guess they were telling you to send in or people just choosing to send in a photo of themselves like hey I'm the guy that drew this Uh, for the homemade heroes section as well there's actually a giveaway you don't just get featured in the magazine so it says here believe it or not the following figures were all made out of plain old ordinary action figures and every one of these talented creators will receive a cyber force toy three pack, and a copy of Cyber Force number one, signed by Mark Silvestri. The two runners-up get all that cool stuff, plus a copy of Cyber Force number two, signed by that Silvestri fella. The grand prize winner runs off with all that loot, plus an awesome Mattel Striker Polystone statue. Congratulations to everyone. Thanks very much to the five folks at Mattel for their generous donation of prizes. You guys are the bestest! I think it's hilarious, though, is if you get second place, then you just get an issue two of Cyber Force. It's still signed, but it's Issue too right, so not quite as fancy. And then finally, here for the letter art, it says: Fans who get their letter art printed will each receive a copy of Lynch Mob Number Three, signed by Greg Capullo. Huh? Lynch mob, A Spider-Man animated series Acetate signed by Stan the Man Lee. Oh, now you got my attention. The issue of Wizard in which their envelope appeared signed by the entire Wizard creative staff. Ooh, I want it! And a funky Wizard cap. The creator of the best envelope wins all that neat stuff plus an original Doctor Strange page by Peter Gross. Artists Please include a clearly printed return address on the back of your envelope. And thanks to Marvel Comics for providing the grand prize. So yeah, there is a photo of the winner here, but there isn't a, like, request to put in a photo. So where is this coming from? Did they contact you after the fact to say, Congratulations, you won. Now send us a picture. That just seems odd to me. But that does it for Cap's kooky contest. On to the next segment. Oh, yes, indeed. It's time for Robin's Reading Rainbow. And on the eighth day, the clouds parted, and from the heavens descended two angelic warriors. One a redhead with a staff, and the other a brunette with a freaking huge sword. The first was created by the pen of Macfarlane and the mind of Gammon, while the other was based on a former vampire model who probably just wanted to wear slightly more clothes at her convention appearances. On this day, the two angels enter, But one angel leaves, as we pit Angela against Evangeline in a battle of the heavenly bad girls. Yeah, now we've been to hell with lady death but now we're traveling in the other direction so joining me on this journey is none other than mr bad girl himself chris bailey aka at charlton underscore hero welcome back chris is that a hell spawn i see adam
1: my <laughs> god it must be vanquished like, oh boy, do we have a shoe for you folks this evening? Boy, do we have a contest of the immortals here? My goodness, we, I mean, two beautiful ladies. Who's going to come out on top, Adam? Only
0: time will tell. Indeed. So, uh, just to catch everybody up as we start out here, most of you probably know this, but Angela debuted in the pages of Spod with issue number nine in 1993 as part of a story written by Neil Gaiman where he basically had her take down a spot. Bon. she was a hunter it was a medieval spawn in this particular case then her popularity skyrocketed and soon she had earned her own self-titled miniseries in 1994 also written by neil gaiman but being drawn this time by greg capullo and of course we're all aware of the eventual legal dispute over ownership of angela between mcfarland and gaiman that ultimately went in favor of gaiman who then sold the angela rights to marvel comics huh <laughs>
1: that's an interesting story I mean we'll get into that a little bit later but boy you talk about some of the the classic comic book battles you know legal uh, you know when you talk about Jack Kirby versus Marvel and who owns rights and then the rights reverted back to Gaiman now think about that for a second because you know Jack Kirby was in a huge battle over you know I drew these characters it's not the writer and didn't get anywhere with it now all of a sudden you know we've got a situation here with which Neil Gaiman is taking the spot away from McFarlane and I mean he designed the look and the whole feel of um of angela and this is this is uh an interesting situation here
0: yeah but at this point in time everybody is still happy as far as we know so we're going to deal mainly with her first two years of existence but i have to ask chris what was your first exposure to the angela character was it that first appearance in spawn
1: absolutely ground zero baby spawn number nine and i mean you know this was when mcfarlane was experimenting with different writers so you know uh you know you had gaiman and then you, then you had the guy who did Cerebus, uh, Dave Sim, and all this stuff, so it was an experimental time, and you know, they were playing with different spawns, and she was a character that came out of nowhere. She's basically a Hell Spawn hunter, and she was one of the, I mean super, super 90s bad girl. I mean, she's got all the accessories, she's got the look, she's everything that is 90s all in one female package, sir.
0: For me, like, I was not a spawn reader, but I was an action figure collector, so I definitely remember seeing her figure on the pegs, but I had no frame of reference my buddy brett he had a ton of mcfarlane figures including angela so that's where i kind of just got the more up close and personal look and read the back of the box and stuff at his house but still never read the comics until preparing for our discussion today and i will say that uh, it's kind of exciting you know to be there where 30 odd years ago everybody else uh, figured it out but now it's exciting for me guys so We're, we're going to talk a
1: lot about hell, because both of these girls exist in their own private hell, and it's kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're about to get religious on your butts.
0: <laughs> that is for sure, and it seemed to be a trend that was going on at this time. So as we get into this three-issue Angela miniseries, is that something you also owned and read back in the day? I did. Now, I
1: didn't own Evangeline. So, you know, that's something that came a little bit later, but I definitely was invested all early image. You know, I was all in when it came to the, any of the products that they were sending out. And, you know, anything with McFarlane's name tagged on it, even so slightly, even though, you know, it's it's not McFarlane. It's who I like to call faux McFarlane, Mr. Capullo. But, uh, you know, still, still, you know, this this was a book that couldn't be missed. And, uh, you know, it had the hot tags written all over it and it was pushing all the buttons. You had, you know, the right proportions and the right time for Chris Bailey back in the 90s. Daddy.
0: <laughs> well and this is interesting for me as I was you know researching it finding out more about it because written by Neil Gaiman my first impression was that Neil Gaiman in this miniseries isn't quite as arch or stuffy as I found it be- to be on Sandman even issue 9 of Spawn which I went back and read it's all like because it's said in medieval times right it feels very kind of like medieval in just the way that he's presenting it and so I also had always assumed that Angela was more of like an all business no personality kind of character Ooh. just a design but nothing interesting about her but she's got a lot of attitude in this story she makes a lot of lip comments as opposed to just like tough guy threats or stoic poses to show how intense she is you know so i liked that a lot and also just the setup of the story chris that on her birthday angela is being framed for hunting hellspawn without a permit and has to evade arrest until she can clear her name that's the perfect like 80s or 90s action movie scenario this is angela on trial i mean you know she's she literally gets sent to hell and
1: has to fight her way out to you know redeem herself but she gets a little bit of help along the way i mean this this was uh if i say that this this three issues or four issues actually because there was actually a zero issue that's right yeah where she's fighting like a pirate spawn Yeah. Now, listen, if you're uh, if you're not into Spawn lore, so, you know, there were multiple souls who sold their soul to, to hell and became Hell Spawn. You know what I mean? And they lived their lives, you know, trying to redeem themselves. But, uh, you know, so you get Medieval Spawn. You get Pirate Spawn. You get all the different Spawns. And Todd McFarlane, even most recently, has just exploded with, uh, you know, the Spawn verse. You know what I mean? It's yeah. everywhere. Everyone can be a Spawn. Me, you, Adam. Anybody <laughs> who wants to be a Spawn can be a Spawn.
0: Well, I have a question for you though maybe you can tell me what you know she has sentient ribbons okay and to me there seems to be no explanation in this particular story as to what the deal is because she says in the opening of the first issue while she's fighting a dragon and beheading it quote my ribbons have gone silent must be in shock from absorbing the impact and then later Spawn asks her quote aren't you cold dressed like that and she says not really my ribbons keep me at a pretty constant body temperature so are they just an all per purpose device i guess is that what they are yeah they're, they're they're basically you know a similar
1: to like almost like an armor for her you know they they regulate her they protect her and all that type of stuff so you know it really doesn't get a lot of explanation okay and, you know from her first appearance right onto this mini series it doesn't go very deep at him so let's put it that way there's there's ah. not a there's not a lot of subtext <laughs>
0: She she does have super strength. Now, you made reference to kind of uh, that she gets some help along the way. So she's got these angel friends. There's Quan Yin and Anahita, and they're convincing Spawn to come to Elysium aka Heaven I guess to be a witness in Angela's trial and there's a really cool thing that happens when he gets to Elysium with his costume the fact that he's from hell or his costume is made in hell like it has this whole issue where it becomes this spikier like on edge version kind of like a cat with its hair standing on end (laughs) see like you said now Gaiman you think he would have played this one
1: straight but he does play for laughs a lot, yeah. well, you know. In this one as well, which was kind of interesting, and you get to see almost like a almost like a slapstick spawn because he's struggling with his powers. He's he's fairly new to the scene, you know what I mean? Yeah. This is not an experienced spawn she's running into. So you know when you know when the when the story gets along a little bit, when Capullo took over on the main book, you know he's more experienced now. He guides other spawns and other characters who are interacting. But right here, he's as raw as a fish from the ocean, and uh, he. really really is just figuring out his powers is funny because both characters are really out of their element here.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. So like when he actually shows up as the surprise witness in her trial, of course all the angels want to murder him because he's a hellspawn. So Angela just all of a sudden shows up, rescues him, tells him to teleport them out of there. And like you said, he's not quite sure how his powers work, so they end up in these catacombs beneath a castle in hell where they then get it on. Oh, I was like, what? What is happening? Like, it just goes all black and you just have the word balloons telling you that they are enjoying themselves. And you're like, what? Uh, But it was so weird to me because in the next issue, Spawn and Angela are just bickering constantly. Like, it's explained that they have been hiding out for two weeks because Spawn doesn't know how to teleport himself out. He just did it on instinct to get them there. So I guess that justifies, like, they're tired of each other, but it also seems to be a place just because that's what a 80s or 90s buddy cop story should have right. You just bicker, you argue. It's you know the the two sides that are not quite on the same page just yet. But it felt like a very jarring change in characterization to me from issue one to issue two. Yes, if you
1: were reading the the Spawn regular series, like it, it fluctuates between. I would say mostly serious. And if you have you ever read the uh, the 90s Spider Man, just the adjectiveless Spider Man with Todd McFarlane? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that is that is about as crude as you're gonna get you know what i mean it's very deep it's very one note you know boom boom doom doom you know what i mean it's sort of very basic storyline and the early issues of spawn were that as well like you know not a lot of levity he's not a barrel of laughs todd mcfarlane
0: that's not he's an intense individual
1: which really, really took me out here because all of a sudden, like you said, it's actually a buddy cop story in hell. (laughs) That's what's happening here. It almost feels like two separate characters. I'm going to be quite honest with you. So, you know, and and especially Angela, you take a look at her first appearance in Spawn number 9, and it's still, it's it's a departure here. Now, we get a little bit of development because, you know, you get, you know, their supporting cast and all that type of stuff flushed out a little bit more. But uh, even Angela herself seems... Different with gaming at the pen, he sort of changes things around here, and uh you, I think you said you liked it. I was sort of taken back; I almost wanted the the stilted warrior out for blood, but instead oh. they were making like, snippy remarks, almost like Spider-Man style. So it, it took me. It took me and that's a what
0: I'm saying. Like, because because I don't have a frame of reference, it's like the people that just go to a Marvel movie and they're just like, "Well, it was funny, it was great," you know? Like they don't know no. like the the history of the characters, and neither do I when it comes to Angela. I mean, apparently it's really interesting too because Elysium is very corporate in structure right like right. And even like and there's people not in like armor all the time or they don't just have wings and fly around like they're dressed in business suits and you know that she has a defense lawyer named Calindra who's helping her out yes. and all this kind of stuff so but um, it was interesting because as the story is wrapping up Spawn and Angela transport themselves away from each other like they each basically get to a point where they can teleport out of hell then you have Angela confronting this high-ranking angel but again just looks like a corporate businesswoman her name is gabrielle and she admits just flat out to framing angela she says because i hate you angela very very much
1: (laughs) i know you talk about you talk about an anticlimactic type of thing you know what i mean like you you had the whole frame of reference so you know angela's been set up she's cast away to hell they got to fight their way out towards the gate and then the explanation is well i did that because i don't like you
0: (laughs) What? very thin very thin Oh man! Like,
1: uh was Gaiman writing this like in between jobs or something? Like, you know, was he scripting on the side when he was doing fifteen other books? Because it it feels very light for a Neil Gaiman story. Put it that way.
0: Yeah, like I say, for me, it was what not what I was expecting. But Angela's lawyer was recording the conversations, so this Gabrielle is now you know gets confronted and she's busted and all that. And uh, then they talk to Angela and all her friends are saying, "Well, your name's going to be cleared. You should come back and just come back and." be awesome the way you have been and she's like no i'm just gonna take freelance hunting gigs now but i did think it was hilarious there's this meta bit of dialogue where angela says quote the whole thing has changed my perspective it's not simply a matter of heaven or hell anymore you don't have to work for the big two there are alternatives i was like wow an obvious marvel and dc and image reference there i'm sure mcfarland's mind is marvel is hell and dc is heaven because it felt like he always wanted to do batman but they never let him have a full batman book you know it's it's funny you said that
1: because both books have that subtext now there's some i bet you i bet you don't know when we get to evangeline a little bit later and maybe you did figure it out but uh there's some of that basic subtext there as well and this one was full of it i mean every single time that image gets an opportunity they're always throwing shots at the big two McFarland's book is loaded with it all the time talking about ownership and owning you know what i mean it's a it's a Thing that's run through all the spawn books and it's really really heavy-handed now i know they're playing it for fun here but you know mcfarlane really really has a beef with marvel at this time and it comes out every single time so yeah definitely yes yeah, so um, I, I was wondering if he knew that his characters were being played for fun here maybe he didn't even read it but you, you can't do the fun in the book you can't, you can't do the fun.
0: <laughs> but moving on here, then, to our next contender, we have Avengeline <laughs> from Maximum Press. So at this time, Rob Liefeld breaking apart uh, from his image cohorts, get, just getting his foot out the door, starting his new publishing entity. So talk to me, Chris, where did you first encounter Evangeline? You said you hadn't read it, but you knew about her, I assume. Yes, because, well, you couldn't, have, if you were reading Wizard at the time, you
1: really, truly couldn't avoid it because, you know, they were big... Big, You know, there was that stretch of of time when, you know, the bad girl books literally clogged up the top 10 books, you know what I mean? So Evangeline, and especially, you know, we had a situation where Rob Liefeld, you know, creating maximum press was, you know, he was making waves and all this type of stuff with this. So he was adamant about creating a new cast of characters. And boy... He uh, he really went heavy handed. So a little bit of a, bit, a little bit of context with Rob, you know, he's a man of, uh, of religion as well. So he's a man of faith. You know, he was raised in a Christian environment. His father was, I think, a minister. And he really, really wanted to do this heaven and hell storyline where, you know, he had basically a fallen angel really technically what this is coming back to redeem herself on earth so you know he goes out of his way to have all the tropes where she's actually battling the devil and his you know female minion and uh, you know trying to save a church and you know it's almost like a scooby-doo mystery wrapped up in like a, uh, a christian <laughs> cloth here is basically what we're doing well
0: and i gotta tell you chris like i actually i used to back in the day get evangel mixed up with warrior nun ariella do you remember this oh book? my god it's like there's all these sexy catholic superwomen. they were trying. <laughs> (laughs) you know like that was the thing i just i i I don't know what it was at this time but it was just a huge huge deal and like i know for me personally like all i saw was oh it's another female warrior character with long legs and now a big sword you know like (laughs) eventually i i saw nothing there that would be like outrageous and then i saw nothing there that would be interesting i was just like there's just this thing happening but as i read through this little three issue miniseries where they're introducing the character i have to say for me the biggest sin of this series is that it's just boring oh no it's not highbrow or thought provoking. Even the art is nothing to get excited about. It's not like the usual extreme studios, <laughs> Maximum Press kind of. You know, you can laugh at it because it's overly stylized. Like there, it's just ugh. And there's and there's nothing especially even about her costume design. She looks like she's oh, no, dressed no. up to go to a high school dance. Like that's that's what it looks <laughs> like. Like I, I just well, wait a second. See... <laughs> I don't
1: know what kind of high school dances you were doing but other but there were the women didn't look like this back in the 80s. I'll tell you that.
0: Maybe it's more her hairstyle.
1: Okay, fair enough. No, but I'll tell you what what's what's interesting both books are not by, you know, the big two artists. So this is, one is a McFarlane book, the other is a Liefeld book. And, you know, neither one of them are penciled by, you know, either of the creators. So you had, over on the other one, you had Greg Capullo of Batman fame doing Angela. And over here on Evangeline, you've got John Stinsman doing his best, and I mean best, maybe worst, Rob Liefeld impression. And it really, it really doesn't work. But story-wise, I liked this one better. Really? Now, think about that for a second. So the first one is written by Neil Gaiman, you know, high, you know, big, you know, wildly recommended author in the comics industry. My God, you know, award after award, American Gods, you know, a novelist, great, great track record. And then you've got Rob Liefeld, who's not exactly known for his writing prowess, we'll say, but I enjoyed this one better
0: believe it or not yeah that i mean this could be a fascinating discussion then because i found the story to be lackluster just coasting on only its premise like it doesn't develop the characters like eventually like you said she's part of like this war host of heaven gotta have war in the title if it's maximum press (laughs) she committed some sin maybe you caught it i didn't and then she's banished to earth now she's a mortal so i don't recall like a revelation about what that transgression was but she's there without any powers and she doesn't ever reclaim her angelic powers she's just a woman a mortal woman on earth finds a heavenly sword that can kill demons in the church basement but how does she even have the strength to lift it it's so gigantic
1: Yeah, that, that end of it makes no sense at all. You're right. They don't really give us a good background, but I think some of this stuff is left to unfold. Like, you know, it's it's a, a mystery within a mystery that will eventually unfold. However, I wasn't there when the mystery unfolded, so I'm with you. This is all I know about
0: her. Well, that's what I was surprised, because I thought it was an ongoing series, but it's only three, and then after that, it's just yeah. all these one-shots and crossovers. Yeah. Like, she didn't, like, and there wasn't like a big explanation of everything, but like, it feels ultimately like eventually just went so badly to be the yin to Lady Death's Yang, right? Instead of being a mortal trapped in hell, she's an angel trapped on Earth, you know? But she has no identifiable character traits. Like, I can't tell you what she cares about other than, I guess she sort of wants to get back to heaven. Like, at one point, she screams, Father! To the heavens. And it just, it feels so false. Like, it's this huge, like, double-page thing, or, you know, a huge panel, at least. And she's just a blank slate to me. I just don't, I get nothing. You know, I, I... I'm
1: going to completely agree with you there because, you know, even the, the story is very, very basic, but I think it's the basic story that I actually dug a little bit. So Mm. the whole thing is that, you know, Evangeline arrives on earth and she, she arrives Terminator style, but naked in the (laughs) alleyway. Conveniently, she finds a long, green trench coat that you know fits her body perfectly in a dumpster because you know that's that's how it works you know that's what kyle
0: reese did she'll do the
1: same okay yep that's exactly right and then she finds her way to saint augustine church Now, what do we know about saint augustine well it's in financial trouble and the devil himself wants to purchase it Now I don't know what the purchasing market is like on churches, (laughs) but I don't think that there's a big you know market for church purchasing. I don't know, but anyway, you get to meet good old Mister Peter Clifton. Now, does that not sound like the weirdest name in the world? Does that not sound like a a... an Andy Kaufman character? Yes, (laughs) Tony's kid brother. (laughs) It's so strange. And Peter Clifton is drawn to look like Rob Liefeld. He does have that look. He does. He got the little wispy hair. He's got that, that silly jawline, you know, the eyes, the whole thing. Now there's a scene in here that I wanted to point it out because you talked about subtext in the other one. So he's playing basketball. Take a look at one yes. of the, I think it's in issue one. He's playing basketball with a jacked up Jim Lee. <laughs> i did not
0: make <laughs> that connection at the time but you're <laughs> yeah. right
1: hey take a look at it next time you're seeing it it's it's literally they they went out of the way to make him look like jim lee on steroids so you know rob leifel jim lee are playing basketball you know chatting about this you know <laughs> female who's all of a sudden got mr you know mr peter clifton who well, is a, a priest well, what's his, you should what's say yeah like he's a he's priest, a priest yeah. and, he,
0: and, and he's involved with eventually but even that there's not really a sexual tension between them really like it you know it's not like a will they won't they that doesn't feel like that's a crux of the story he's just like i'll follow you wherever you go evangeline i'll help I, you i i i think he gets really invested so i think what they point out is that
1: he loses his all his you know common sense and he just wants to throw everything and just help this girl, you know yeah. what I mean? Now, we get to meet his other person, the other guy that runs the church. So, Peter lives in the church, keep that in mind, with Father Malloy. Now, Father Malloy is about the creepiest uh, <laughs> character you've ever seen, and uh, he he lives in the church, and he's questioning Peter's sanity for just bringing, basically, a stripper into the church and saying, yeah. oh, yeah, by the way, she can live here. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, Sounds of which, great. At, at of a certain
0: point, when she is getting ready to go into battle, because she's like, said she shows up naked so eventually like they have some clothes at the church that have been donated she puts <laughs> on this sexy mini dress or whatever it is and then when she goes out to fight she rips it even more to where you know she's got a midriff now and she's got it was, oh. it's so bizarre like how it just transforms oh. magically into a sexier outfit i guess oh
1: adam so so the first night she's there the girl literally has the green trench coat she doesn't have a stitch of clothes nothing no undergarments not a thing else on but anyway, you know, Mr. Peter, of course, says, Oh, we'll get Sister Janice to go to the basement and retrieve something. The only thing they retrieve for her is a men's white dress shirt that is clearly <laughs> see-through and Mr. Stinson goes out of his way to detail the uh, the upper portion of uh, Evangeline. God bless him, really.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's wild. It's so, like, oh, the, the other part, getting back to it, because sometimes you think a villain could save the day in terms of entertainment value or adding gravitas to a yes. story, but but he, he's just right. kind of this demon and has some history with Evangeline and just the war host in general. Like He looks like every, every uh, Rob Liefeld villain
1: you've ever seen. You know, he's got the red eyes, he's got the ponytail,
0: more interestingly he has this female demon with wings who is just purgatory from lady death with white skin instead of (laughs) red skin a hundred percent it's all
1: low-hanging fruit but you're you're exactly right these uh you know the image guys are basically ripping each other off and we talked about she there a little while ago so you know the the sword the female with the sword is a big deal you know what i mean despite marvel you know breaking it out with magic early on
0: yeah so i mean and again eventually it Wraps up and she has the sword that can stab a demon. She beats Helena. Yeah. She does. She beheads Helena. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I like this too because the the relationships are very very superficial too. Yeah, and I think that's probably what I dug about it. So if I'm comparing Gaiman's writing to Liefeld's, Gaiman made the characters feel like I didn't know them. Like I, these weren't the characters that I've been reading for nine issues in Spawn. You know what I mean? Like they were they were too aloof. They were too funny. They were too comedy based. And here you just get, I think, what I was expecting with Angela, you know, just a straightforward kick-ass murderer with, you know, no conscience. I think that's what I was <laughs> expecting. But, yeah, it's very, very, very light on on depth in the story and all that stuff. But I kind of dug it. Now, the art, the art, Adam. Mm. Oh, my. In consistent there's parts of this where clearly he sat down and maybe you know Liefeld coached him along and all that stuff and then there were some things where he was almost left to his own devices and it's really really like there's no depth to the drawing you know if say if you gave your son or somebody like that a you're going to draw a picture of Spider-Man he's going to draw him probably straight on with no movement you know what I mean like no tilting of the character tilting of the body and you get a lot of that so there's a lot of up close face shots there's a lot of people standing straight on you know what I mean there's not a lot of movement at all in the art now evangeline is created by rob Liefeld and kathy christian now when you're going through the pages of uh evangeline you're going to see that she actually this kathy christian person actually poses for photos like live action photos like legit pictures of her dressed as evangeline did you notice that
0: yeah absolutely Well, they said that the character was created in collaboration with kathy christian she became popular as the live action vampirella model for harris comedy she marries Tony Libido over at Image, and then now she's over at Maximum Press with Rob, and she gets her own comic. So yeah, it's, mm. it's definitely, she has seemed to have at least some involvement. I don't know how much input, but I think she at least, yeah, they're like, she will be very involved from the beginning. And yeah, I have a photo cover and the wraparound chromium cover that I bought recently, so.
1: Ooh, boy, you're all in. You're all in, baby. Well,
0: I, there was about a million of them at the store I went to, literally literal stacks chris like 12 inch thick stacks and no one bought them and then somebody dropped them off at a used bookstore that's where i got these issues (laughs) are you serious what are they going
1: for right now if you if you were buying a one dollar
0: is what i bought them for (laughs) for each issue yeah holy cow i I don't know what people are marking up for on ebay but i don't think it's too much (laughs) Man, you're gonna. I might ask you to buy me some of those. Yeah, I see what I can I'm, do. I'm, but tell me, Chris, we've had our discussion, but let's get to our final verdict here in this okay. battle. Who had the more heaven sent comic? Was it Angela or was it Evangeline?
1: I tell you what. Why don't we break it down in four categories, and then we, we'll just do this rapid fire succession So, okay, Angela versus Evangeline. Art. Who gets the nod? Angela, definitely. Capullo. Writing. I think we're split on this one. I, I, like, the, I like the simplicity of the Lochfeld, and I thought Gaiman went a little bit off the rails. Who are you going with?
0: Yeah, I got to go with Gaiman. Just great dialogue, great plot, colorful supporting characters. All that story was very fun for me. All right, perfect. And Design. Let's talk about the
1: design. Angela versus Evangeline. Who gets the better design? I don't think there's any question.
0: Yeah, sorry, Mr. Stinsman. It is great, Capullo. <laughs> no issue at all. And the final thing is your overall enjoyment. Who gets the nod? I have to say, Evangeline literally left me yawning and scratching my head. It was a chore to get through. So it's 100% Angela in this case. And you listen, I I think overall,
1: I think we, we can conclude that I think Angela gets the nod in this particular particular war and you don't have to go to hell to find that one out because i think maybe in reading this we may have gone to hell and back I think Angela definitely gets the knob here, 100%.
0: Well, there you go. We found a a satisfying conclusion, I think. There there will be no war in heaven between us going forward. So (laughs) (laughs) it is all good. It is all good. But Chris, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation and for your opinions. Very, very interesting discussion today. Where can people find Jeff? They want to continue on and give you their opinions oh my goodness if you want to give me your opinions just just literally send it to
1: adam i don't need those no i'm kidding i'm kidding (laughs) you can you can uh hit me up on twitter that's my main operandus uh you can find me at charlton underscore hero over on the twitter hanging out over there there you go
0: all right well let's get into some more fun Alright, so changing it up here a little bit from our normal format, we had a listener on social media when we posted a picture of the 1996 Wizard Price Guide Annual that was something that they were promoting at this time. There's even a 50 cents off coupon in this issue. Um, But uh, there was a preface or a foreword or an introduction whatever you want to call it by Harlan Ellison called Worlds Before You Begin. And it was requested that we read this. I don't know what is contained here within. This is going to be a first-time read, but knowing Harlan Ellison, it's probably kind of wacky, so let's get on to this adventure. Upon the eventual death in 1923 of George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert V, Earl of Carnarvon, co-discoverer with archaeologist Howard Carter, at the ages-lost tomb of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings, it was softly and gently whispered that a great many more artifacts than had been catalogued had in fact been unearthed in that astonishing Egyptian necropolis. It was bruited through the International Museum Underground in Chinese whispers that Lord Carnarvon had... Er- well, excluded more than a few of the choicest pieces. His death only a year after the opening of the tomb, with all the attendant nonsense mythology about the curse of the pharaohs, it was a mosquito bite, served to damp the rumors, even though new icons kept turning up. Decades later, on the occasion of refurbishing the ancestral maids of the Carnarvons, a carpenter, aside the task of ripping out mildew reeking baseboards and water-soaked paneling, prized open a decrepit section of wall in an upstairs gallery and found himself staring at a series of large, dust-thick cobweb chambers that had lain hidden and unknown, lost and unopened since the untimely demise of the 5th Earl. Racked and shelved, billeted and closeted, stashed and secreted in glass cases and reliquaries, mounted on walls and still nesting in crates full of excelsior, stacked in niches and arrayed in Victorian armoires were hundreds of unknown artifacts. Quote... Finger rings of blue fans decorated with the cartouche of Commons throne name. Neb a slender silver nails withdrawn from the second coffin of the king. And two royal nails in solid gold from the third coffin. An elegant broad collar of blue fans beads. A solid gold ring. The fragmentary handle of a golden fan or scepter. Inlaid masterfully with pieces of carnelian, lapis lazuli, and green feldspar set into a series of horizontal chevrods. And on and on. Uh, Harlan, are you going to get to comics at some point here? I just... I mean, you're testing my vocabulary, but I am just... Wow. Okay. Let's find out what goes on here. Cardarvon uh, and Carter, in secret, had stolen back into the newly opened tomb and had disported themselves as had tomb robbers throughout the centuries. They had spirited away and hidden, knowing no public display could ever be made of their possessions, lest they be disgraced and likely even be criminally charged. The collectibles that cried out to them, Take me, you you want me, you must have me, I'm yours, if only you'll take me up and take me away. And so, they did. Two of the most famous men in the annals of archaeology risked everything to possess the rare, the special, the incalculably treasurable, the unique. They robbed, they looted, they pilfered, they took demented and criminal risk to own that which no one else owned. They were collectors. Ah, okay, I see where this is going. H.G. Wells was a collector of military miniatures. Oh, come on. He made whole rooms in his home, useless for human Congress because they were filled with mock battles posed by thousands of lead soldiers, massed in phalanxes and battalions in hollow squares. He got daily mailings from all over the world from fans and enthusiasts of zuavis and paratroopers and dragoons and horse guards. And when he lay dying in 1946, he held a tiny toy soldier. And when his nurse fussed over him as his last moment arrived, he said, go away, I'm all right. He was a collector. (laughs) And aren't we all? The Romanovs collected Fabergé eggs, Andy Warhol filled warehouses with collections of cookie jars, salt and pepper shakers, wind up toys, greeting cards, and actor Robert Culp collected big little books from the 30s and 40s. Jay Leno has a collection of rare cars so large he has to lease half a dozen airplane hangar-sized storage facilities. In the world of comic book moguls, avid collectors Mike Richardson, Steve Jeppy, Russ Cochran, and Dennis Kitchen all have collections worth millions of dollars. They are all collectors. This is a sickness. It is a need for the laying on of hands. It is a never-diminishing fear that possesses otherwise decent and normal men and women and children. I have seen a comic book collector desirous of obtaining an issue of pep comics from the mid-forties from another archivist who could not bear to part with it go mad with lust. I have seen him hire thugs and pistoleros and after kicking in the front door of the archivist's home have seen him and his vile horde slaughter the residents of that house so the last child and puppy and guppy simply to to possess that one perfect ten-cent periodical. I have seen sensible, sensitive, and sensual women, driven by the need to complete their run of William Moulton Marston Wonder Woman comics, seduce and poison magazine dealers who had priced the rarities beyond normal means. New horrors! New horrors! To own the unique, to sit in the wee steamy hours wearing nothing but thin latex gloves, turning the pages of Street and Smith's Shadow Comics with most excellent drawings by Bob Powell, to gaze at the rarest of the Rare to sell one's spouse and offspring into the harems and whorehouses and the oil duchies of the Mideast to obtain the funds, to buy a mint copy of Captain Marvel Adventures number one, to be able to say, all glassy-eyed and short of breath, to the postperson or random Federal Express messenger, would you like to see my collection? To be a fine collector, is this not life at the top? <laughs> money, 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 money. Everybody's gonna pay. If the truth be known, I hate these damn price guides. They are handmade into the grossing out of the American kid comic buying constituency. Kids don't go to a comic book shop and look about in wonder these days. They don't enter the shop like Alibaba, whipping a fast open sesame on a blank wall and getting entrance to the Cave of Miracles. They don't enter the holiest of holies, the little shop of comics with eyes all bugged and filled with bounty. They don't save their pennies to buy the one special comic they just gotta have. Today, or actually a few months ago, a ratty little weasel of a kid who was standing next to me as I was considering ponying up the King's Ransom to buy Hit Comics number 5 from 1940 with that incredible Lou Fine cover when an urchin in rollerblades sallied up beside me, took one look and asked, how much is that worth? I looked out at him. It's worth all the jewels and essences of Araby to me, kiddo. He looked up at me, sneered and said, is it going to sell for more than the first issue of Spawn? Fortunately, I was able to stomp the little pissant to death before he was able to extrude his pods and open his shell and spread his demon seed to the wind. Bill and Sharon and Tony at Golden Apple help me swab up the green slime, hoping you are the same. The point being, I really don't like these price guide things. All they do is leech the joy out of comic book reading and collecting and turn innocent kids into clone children of Reaganomics. Pukey little green heads who don't know a good story from a pimple on the butt. Price guides tell them that the value of a creative team is not inherently in the item itself, it's in the dubious market value. And as we all know, those who sell rare and old and valuable comics are uniformly twisted, demented, aberrant toads, only recently escaped from institutions of moral turpitude, or asylums for the terminally boring. Also, they don't stand close enough to their toothbrushes in the morning. (laughs) Uh, There's more, guys. So here I am, having been pressed into service to write yet another introduction or preface or whatever to yet another price guide for yet another year. And I'm taking money for it, so that tells you a lot more than you need to know about me. What you might find interesting about me is that I dwell beneath the cloak of madness that is collecting, the same as many of you. I collect military miniatures and art deco furniture, big little books and postal first day covers, pewter figurines and rare glass like Lalique and Muller Frères and Korea collectible comic art drinking glasses like and pocket watches, first edition books and wind-up toys, trading cards, and the film scores of Ennio Morricone. But most of all, I collect comics. Hundreds of comics. Thousands of comics. Tens of thousands of comics. Been collecting them since I bought or got or stole. My first one, the New York World's Fair comics in 1939, and I still have all of them. My mother respected my hobby. She never threw mine out, and so when I consulted last year's Wizard comic book price guide annual, I discovered to my horror and great sadness that the 1939 comic bearing its price tag of 15 cents. It was, I believe, the first 15-cent comic in an era when all comics, except Nickel Comics, cost a mere 10 cents. 15 cents was a fortune in them days. Now it goes for $12,000 in mint condition and $3,025 in very good condition. My copy is somewhere between those two. And my copy of the 1940 New York World's Fair comics, which then became, for one issue, World's Best Comics, and thereafter spent its existence as the DC Anthology World's Finest Comics, can be obtained in mint condition for a me $7,000. $7,000. Now, do you understand why I hate these price guide things? It's sorrowful enough to dwell beneath the cloak of collector lunacy to want to need to hunger for physical possessions. It's an obsession that can never be sated. One can never own enough or have enough or be content enough merely to stop. It's bad enough to be trapped in a habit pattern like that. But it's infinitely worse to consider what those dear, lovely, and rare artifacts are worth. I own a Hans Bach painting. Someone asked me if I'd sell it for 10 grand. I bought it for a lot less than that. I said no. How about 15 G's? No. Then maybe 20, 25. My last offer is 30. What do you say? I say no. Not in a million years. Not if I had no money to buy shoes. I didn't buy that spectacular Bach painting to make a goddamn profit off of you, pinhead. I bought it to look at it, to marvel at it, to enjoy it. I am a collector, and here I am, a collector, a lover of comics from the age of five, now 61 years old, editing a comic that bears my name every month, and I still love comics. As rotten as so many of them are these days, as expensive as they've become, as much space as they take up cataloging and bagging and storing them, I still love them. The feeling of them, the look of them, the moments when they're so good you wish they could be on display in the Guggenheim, and the knowledge that even though kids will continue to be corrupted by price guides and hustlers trying to separate them from their dollars with lies about rarity and hot collectible. Still, they are a joy unparalleled. The comic book. It's there to be read, to be enjoyed. To hell with how valuable it is. To hell with the ego-drenched creators who go along with grub-hungry publishers who issue alternate covers and metallic editions and holographic specials and create all the artificial collectibles that drive you nuts. To hell with them. They aren't comic book lovers or readers or even collectors. They're home-shopping nitwit hustlers and to hell with them. Price cuts like this are nifty and spiffy and max cool and imperial, not because they tell you some treasures in your attic is worth 80 gazillion bucks, but because they show you the history and timeline of the existence of this purely American-born art form. It may have prices in it, but the delight is for your eyes, not your wallet. And now you'll have to excuse me. The black hooded thugs from the comic Inquisition are here to drag my sorry carcass away to be tortured for having written such heretical crap. Wow. That that was a journey. That was, that's going to make a lot of us reflect, right, about our collector mentality. And just uh, got some soul searching to do here. But thank you to Corey Brown for making that request and getting us to read that intro because, woo! But what a way to close out a show, right? This is a very fun and uh, different format for our Wizards Half episodes, but I hope you enjoyed the change-up a little bit. I will tell you next time on our main episode, episode 52, we have a lot of fun to come because our former co-host, Steven Sapellis will be back, and he's bringing along his wife, Annie Flowers, who is an X-Files fanatic, and this issue actually deals a lot with the X-Files, so we will be getting deep into that and uh, trying to educate her on the world of 90s comics (laughs) it's gonna be a journey for her as well of course you can stay in touch with us on twitter at wizards comics on instagram at wizards underscore comics a lot of the suggestions for change-ups this episode came from you so continue to tell us what you want to hear on the mini episodes and we can add it in thanks again to chris bailey aka charlton hero for helping us with that angela versus evangeline review do you have thoughts go ahead and share them with us on social media Leave us a five-star review while you're at it on your old clickety-clack computer machine because we would love to have more people find the show and enjoy it. Thank you so much those of you who retweet and share and are telling the world because we have a lot of nostalgia and so do you and we want to hear all about it. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded.